All right, now, are there any country music fans here in the room? Okay, all right. Um, well, do you know, a little country music trivia, what was the number one Billboard country album in October 1990? This week, 1990, what was it? That was, I think, the number one song from the second studio album of a young man out of Oklahoma named Garth Brooks. He had the number one album, October 13th, 1990, No Fences. Right? Friends in Low Places, Thunder Rolls, a lot of those heathen songs that I know y'all don't listen to. But there was one song on there in particular that I got to thinking about this week. Unanswered Prayers. Unanswered Prayers. Y'all know that. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. That's a pretty good song because it's immediately relatable. Um, all of us know what it means to pray for something that you really want. In the moment, you got to have it. You need it. You know it's going to be the missing piece to bring your life together. It's going to give you all the meaning and joy and happiness that's been missing. If only God would come through and give you that thing. And then he doesn't. And instead he gives you something else. And in hindsight you look back and you thank him that, hey God, you knew what you were doing. I didn't. Thank you for doing what you did and not what I was beating down the door of heaven to get you to do. Thank you God for unanswered prayers. Right? Y'all can relate. Right? I can relate. I know what it means. And um, our passage this morning isn't really a prayer, but it lets us in on something that's going on. A man with a desire, and Jesus with a better and more perfect plan for his life. And I don't know what you want. I don't know what you're praying for. I don't know what consumes your mind at night while you're laying in bed. If I only had this thing, the thing that you're praying to God for, I don't know what it is. And I hope it honors the Lord, and I hope he gives it to you reveals to you that he is a good father who loves you and delights in giving good gifts to his children. But I do know there is one thing he wants for you that surpasses everything else. It's that your sins would be forgiven and that you would have a real relationship with him. That's what we're going to see here in Mark chapter 2. I hope you're there. I forgot to turn there and intended to do that introduction after we read the scriptures. So we're doing things a little out of order according to my plans, but I guess God's in charge so why don't you stand up and let's read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, the story of four friends with extravagant faith. I was going to call it that, but figured that was too many alliterative Fs. This is what God's Word says. When he'd come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. 
But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Hey, let's pray, church. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, that it instructs us, it, it builds us up in our faith. We believe that you're capable of doing more than we can even ask or think. And so we pray that right now, whatever we hope to gain from this sermon would be exceeded by what you pour into us through it. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus and love him because of the truth of your perfect and precious word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all go ahead and be seated. Now, you know, if you've been here the past few weeks, we've been working through Mark chapter 1, seeing who Jesus is is. And it's come up time and time and time again. Jesus is the Messiah, promised by the Old Testament. He's the Son of God. He's the King, proclaiming the fullness of time and the kingdom of God at hand. And he is exerting his authority over all things. He's exerted his authority in his teaching. People said, hey, we've never heard anybody teach like that before. He didn't teach like the scribes do. He teaches with authority. He shows his authority over the unclean spirits, the demons, when he just speaks the word and says, shut up, come out of them, and they flee. The people say, "What? He, even the demons listen to him. He's exerted his authority over sickness, like we saw last week with the paralytic. He just says the word, you're clean, and the man's leprous sores disappear from his body, and he's instantly cleansed. Chapter 1 focuses on the growing glory of Jesus, how people everywhere start to see this authority, and they're just in awe of him. Mark tells us over and over, they're amazed. They don't have words. They say, we've never seen anything like this before. And they flock to him. Everywhere he goes, word about him spreads, and crowds multiply. We even saw last week, that, or two weeks ago actually, Jesus had to leave the villages themselves and go to these uh, sort of abandoned places, all these little know-nothing towns, so that he could get away from the crowds and preach the gospel, because that's why he came. But apparently, after he healed the leper, he snuck back into Capernaum, hoping to lie low and do whatever Jesus was trying to do. But the people found out he was there, and they came to him again. See, chapter 1 is about the growing glory of Jesus, the crowds coming to him. Chapter 2 is all about increasing conflict and controversy. In fact, over the next five weeks, we're going to see five stories, each centering on Jesus' conflict with the religious establishment. And each time, he exerts his authority over their preconceived notions about who God is and what God wants to do. And so as chapter 2 begins, this season of controversy in Jesus' life, it, it sort of kicks off with what I think is a doozy, right? The proclamation of forgiveness of sins. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and you read through the Gospels before, you've probably come across this amazing story. And the thing that jumps out to us is the, the extravagant faith of these friends. Um, they overcome all kinds of obstacles to get their friend to Jesus. And we wish we had friends like that, right? We wish we had people who'd be willing to pick us up and carry us to Jesus if we needed it. And I, and I hope you have friends like that here at CBC. I really do hope you feel like this is your church family who would drop everything and get you to Jesus. The way Mark describes this story is, is pretty amazing. Um, archaeologists have uncovered first century homes in Capernaum, and they tell us that most of them were pretty small, maybe as few as 15 meters wide, and the rooms inside of them were, were quite small, 
And so you could maybe fit six, eight, or ten people comfortably in a room. But Jesus' miracles have meant that word about him spread everywhere, and so there are more than six, eight, or ten people who want to be around him at all times. And so they would press in close. We saw this a few weeks ago after he heals Simon's mother-in-law, that the whole town, Mark says, gathered outside his door. Now they're back. Everybody everywhere crowding in, pressing here to hear him preach the word. I hope you said that. He's teaching them the word, the word that the kingdom of God is at hand. But these friends weren't going to be deterred by a little crowd. So most first century Capernaum homes had a, a flat mud roof where maybe the man of the house did his work during the day or where in the particularly hot seasons of the year they'd sleep on it. You could access that roof by an outdoor staircase. So these guys snaked their way through the crowd with their friend on a stretcher, went up the ladder, and got onto the roof. And Mark tells us they dug a hole. Okay, Bizarre set of events. In fact, the Greek says that they unroofed the roof. That's just a strange way of saying that. They took a renovation project and flipped it on its head. They just started removing things. Uh, he says they dug out a hole, and the word he uses is the same word they used to talk about digging out a trench or a canal. I mean, they, they got shovels up there, and they are plowing through this mud-thatched roof trying to get their friend to Jesus. And you imagine the scene in the house. Jesus there with the crowds around him teaching, and all of a sudden, you start to see some dust and dirt start trickling down. Next thing you see, there's the tip of a shovel and hands pulling things out. And you just, everybody just stands in awe. What's happening? But the, the chaos and the falling timbers and, and dripping mud, whatever, none of that's what Jesus sees. Mark says, seeing their great faith. Jesus looked beyond the digging and the unroofing of the roof, and he saw the motivation behind it. What really was going on? What, what were these friends up to? What were they doing? Well, they'd heard the stories about Jesus, how he would heal people, and they believed that if they got their buddy into the room with Jesus, Jesus would do what Jesus does, and he would be healed. I find it really comforting that Jesus saw their faith. He, he saw what they were up to, undeterred by the fact that he's tearing Simon's house apart. That's not the issue here. The issue is these men have faith. And Jesus is always looking for faith. Everywhere in the gospel you see it, people show up expressing faith, and Jesus takes notice. Mark chapter 5, the, the gospel writer Mark tells us about uh, a day when they were walking through a village and a crowd was there again pressing in on Jesus. There's a woman who had an illness she'd been struggling with for years, and, and nobody could heal her. And here she comes, snaking through the crowd, knowing that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she'd be healed. And so she finally makes her way to it, falls at his feet, touches the hem of his robe, and is healed. And Jesus stops everything. It's like the record scratch. The scene stands still. He looks at his disciples. Who just touched me? I said, Master, everybody's here. They're all pressing against you. You've been touched by dozens, if not hundreds, of people today. What are you talking about? He said, No, somebody touched me, and I felt the power and authority flow from me. He looks around, and there's this little old lady, sick. And she, he sees her, and looks her in the face, and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. 
Mark tells us in Mark 10, one day Jesus and his disciples are wrapping up a day of ministry in Jericho, and they leave the village on the road. And a man, sitting on a little mat, is crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Causing this whole scene. Jesus is opposed to that name. Son of David had really political overtones as a messianic title. And uh, he, he shuns those kinds of things throughout the gospel. Instead, he prefers the name we saw in our passage, the Son of Man. And so he's kind of annoyed by the fact that Bartimaeus keeps talking. And so he wants him to be quiet. Finally, he goes over to him. He says, man, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has made you well. See, Jesus sees these men's faith. He sees what it's up about. He, he knows. They've taken in the stories about him. They see who he is, what he's capable of, and they believe in their heart that if they could get their friend to Jesus, he would heal them. See, faith is sometimes mischaracterized as a blind leap into the unknown and the unknowable. That you had to have to detach yourself from reality if you're going to believe in Jesus and who he is and what he does. But these men had taken in the facts they had seen what Jesus was capable of, and they weren't just believing, hey, Jesus is capable of healing people. They were acting on it. Faith is not just from our head, but from our heart, us placing our whole hope and trust and confidence in who Jesus is and what he does. And so these men act in faith. They move heaven and earth. They dig out the roof. They unroof it so they can get their friends to Jesus. And when that happens, we're expecting more of the same. Your faith has made you well. Get up, take your mat, and walk. But instead, right as we get to the climax of the story, the pallet slowly lowering into the Capernaum house, Jesus seeing their faith, he hears their prayer. Heal me. Help me walk. Give me back my life that I've lost, my career. Help me provide for my family. He, he hears all that. He says, I'll do you one better. Your sins are forgiven. See, it's not an unanswered prayer, okay, because he does end up healing him. But Jesus enlarges his expectation of what he's capable of, and he shows him what he really needs. He doesn't just need his legs back. He needs his sins forgiven. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning, that all of us need forgiveness because we've sinned against God. I mean, this man's under no illusion about his need. He knows it. He's, he's met by his inability every day, unable to walk, unable to even get to Jesus himself. He relies on the kindness of his friends. We're not told if he was born paralyzed or if he was involved in some terrible accident and lost his career because he can't work for himself anymore. We, we don't know any details about it, but we do know that this man is living a life of utter brokenness, totally disabled, unable to move. And so he's not under any illusion of his need. And Jesus' response to me, I'm reading this trying to prepare a sermon. I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing? You know what this guy needs. He needs his legs back. He needs to be able to get out there and work. But from an Old Testament perspective, there's really no major difference or distinction made between a person's sinfulness and the broken condition of their life. Right? The Old Testament weaves these things together inseparably because um, I think maybe the authors of Scripture are better than we are at rooting themselves in God's reality, which tells us that we live in a broken world, infected by the stain of sin. I mean, wickedness spread over the face of the earth. Some of y'all heard of that this morning in Bible study. 
right? It's everywhere, and it infects all of us, not just in the width, so that there's no square inch of the earth where sin doesn't have some kind of dominion, but it's also pretty deep, and that affects every part of who we are as people. Sin twists our desires so that we want things that are contrary to God's will. It twists our actions so that even when we try to do what's good, we end up making it about us and getting famous or getting a slap on the back or something, getting a note card at the end of the year saying, job well done. I mean, sin's everywhere and in everything. And so when Jesus tells this man, your sins are forgiven, maybe this guy thinks, okay, well, maybe the good news is here. Maybe I am about to be healed. In fact, one of the rabbis said that a person's not really healed until their sins have been forgiven. And that's what Jesus gives this guy. He says, you want your legs? Do you one better? I'm going to forgive you of your sins. See, the scriptures are pretty clear about our condition before God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah says it, Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned aside to his own way. That's a reality. The psalmist says in Psalm 53, 1-3, Paul quotes it in Romans, the fool said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anybody. Anybody who understands? Anybody who seeks after God? Now, every one of them has turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. That is the biblical reality of mankind. Because of that, we need forgiveness because we've sinned. The Bible also tells us what sin is. Sins are not deviations from society's norm. They're not mistakes or personality quirks or inherited traits that we got from our parents, like I'm angry because my dad was always angry. No, the Bible tells us that since we're created by God, we were created to live for the glory of God, fulfilling the purpose for which we had been created by living a life of perfect obedience. But the first man went astray, and since then we inherit a sinful nature so that we follow his sin with sins of our own. But there's always God, our creator, reminding us internally and out here by his word what he expects of us. Because of that, one Christian statement says that sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of God's law. The Apostle John says that sin is lawlessness. So you and I, I mean every human who's ever lived, is a lawbreaker, rebelling against the authority of our creator God. Because of that, we stand before him condemned, and we need forgiveness. Without forgiveness, we are totally doomed. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. And I kind of have overlooked this passage, but in researching this week for this sermon, I, I stumbled across, and I want you to listen to this. This is from 2 Thessalonians 1, which is a bizarre little book, and probably why we skip it as quick as possible. Okay, but this is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. He says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You got that? In heaven with angels and flaming fire. Then he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 
That's, that's the destination of every person who lives apart from the will of God. person who lives in sin. And the scripture says that's all of us. Apart from some kind of outside force working in us and for us, we are destined for that point where we stand before God and give an account for our lives and enter into everlasting judgment because there's none who's perfect. No, not one. So our greatest need, I mean, you may not be on a pallet this morning, but you got some needs. You need forgiveness. Some way to deal with your sin. Now I know we all know we're, we're humans. To err is to be human. None of us is perfect. We're willing to admit that. But at the same time, we're pretty quick to make justifications for ourselves. You know, like, well, I've never cheated on a test before. And I know some people have cheated. They got, they got through school. Can I get an amen up here? Some people get through school by cheating. You know what I'm talking about. Some people do. And here you are trying to keep the straight and narrow, and you're getting bad grades, and they're cheating. It's not fair. Never cheated on my test. I never cheated on my taxes. I always pay what they ask. I know there are people out here, loopholes notwithstanding, getting away with stuff, and here I am every year writing that check, paying my taxes. I never cheated on my wife. I've been faithful to my wife. Now, of course, yeah. Sometimes lose my temper. Sometimes have one too many drinks or whatever. You insert your own little imperfections and quirk, all right? But most of the time, we, we get into the habit of making excuses for ourselves. Acting like, yeah, people sin, and who doesn't? But really, what? Not, never killed anybody. I mean, how big of a deal can it be? But the scripture says that to sin in one area of the law is to be guilty of it all. So I don't think you want your plan to be that you're going to stand before God and offer him up all kinds of reasons why you're the exception to the rule. Yeah, I know people are sinful, but Lord, come on. We're talking about me here. Now, we all need forgiveness because we all have sin. Every last one of us. And Jesus says it. Seeing their great faith, your sins are forgiven. So that's some good news. We also see here that forgiveness is God's gift to give. Forgiveness is God's gift to give. So that in verses 6 and 7, when these scribes, scribes sit up straight, they heard something there, not quite sure about. Mark tells us there were some scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? A few weeks ago, we saw these scribes are professional interpreters of the law. They were the preachers of their day. The guys who stood up there and said, hey, this is what this means. And the kind of guy you'd go to and ask questions if you had questions about the scriptures. And so they know all, all this stuff. They know that human beings are sinful. They have no issue with that. They're the guys who are out there reminding people on Sunday, naming out sins, pointing fingers, saying, hey, I'm talking about you. Those are the scribes, all right? They know people are sinful. That's not the issue. The reason they sit up straight and they're, they turn their hearing aids up a little bit when Jesus starts to speak is because they heard something that didn't sit right with them. I mean, they knew that since sin is rebellion against God's authority as our creator and lawgiver, then forgiveness was God's prerogative. Only God can forgive sins because all sins are committed against God. David says this, I mean, David commits adultery with the woman Bathsheba, and her husband's a, a valiant warrior. He sends him to the front line so he can be killed. So he, he commits adultery, 
murders the woman's husband to cover up the result of their adulterous affair. And yet, in his prayer of confession, Psalm 51, he says to God, My sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. What's that about? Well, forgiveness is God's prerogative because all sins are committed against God. And over and over and over through the Old Testament, this point gets brought up again and again and again. Sin is committed against God, therefore God is the only one who can forgive it. The good news is God likes to forgive sins. He looks for opportunities to do it. He says in Exodus 34, 6-7, a key passage, I think I quote it every, every Sunday, where God reveals his name to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for a thousand and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's who God is. God in a nutshell, the God who forgives. We know 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's God. God who is sinned against, is willing to forgive. And so the psalmist can pray in Psalm 86, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. So make note, the scribes know people are sinful and they know that they need forgiveness. But they're convinced, rightfully so, that it's God's prerogative to forgive. Now, these are the bad guys in the Gospels. They're the guys who end up taking this blasphemous, quote-unquote, act by Jesus and magnifying it before the Sanhedrin so that they can drum up charges to crucify him. From this point on, they're in constant conflict seeking to do him in. So they're the bad guys, but they're at least right on this point. They knew the truth. Forgiveness is God's to give. And I wonder if you share that belief. Do you believe that only God can forgive sins? Do you believe you're accountable to Him for the things that you've done to Him, and therefore you're in His debt, and your only hope is that He might expunge the record that stands against you of all the things you've said and done and thought? Do you share their belief? Does it make you shake in your boots a little bit to know that each person will give an account for their lives, for every careless word they've spoken and everything they've done? Man, that, that makes me pause a little bit. If you share that belief, when was the last time you prayerfully confessed your sin before the Lord? I don't mean, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's a good prayer to pray. I, my parents taught me that and prayed it religiously until I was 28, you know. It's just part of who I am. That's, that's a good prayer to pray at night, y'all. But I'm talking about broken heartedness before God, a humble and a contrite heart he will not despise. To say, search me, O God. Reveal to me if there be any hidden sin. I'm saying like, to lay yourself bare. The author of the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews 4 says to lay yourself naked before God, totally exposed, nothing to hide. When is the last time 
you confessed your sin before the Lord. Now we talked about unanswered prayers. But, but I think the prayer God always forgives is God, you saw today when I lost my temper with my coworker and I acted sinfully. Forgive me of that. God answers that prayer a hundred times over without a second thought. He's ready to forgive. I love the way it's written in the Book of Common Prayer our Anglican friends use. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Who in here couldn't pray that honestly? That's a universal prayer. Something that applies to each of us equally. Maybe that's too long and verbose. Maybe the prayer our Orthodox friends pray makes more sense for you. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. But honestly, when was the last time you confessed your sin before the Lord? If we believe that forgiveness is God's to give, and we've all sinned against Him and we need forgiveness, we ought to make it a habit, confessing quick, keeping a short account with God every day, confessing the things we've done and left undone. So the scribes knew they were accountable to God. They knew that he's the one who can forgive. And they knew they'd sinned. Their issue wasn't there. Their issue was that they heard Jesus' words and they took him seriously. They took it on face value. Uh, R.T. Francis wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Mark that I've been using. And uh, he says they saw straight through Jesus. They saw that what he was doing wasn't pronouncing God's forgiveness. But it was a, I like this, performative act. That by saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus was performing the thing he said. He was forgiving his sins. That was the issue. Jesus took up for himself the prerogative that God exercises. Forgiveness is God's to give. And yet, here's this guy, Jesus, saying the sins are forgiven. What does that mean? For them, they said, that's blasphemy. He's acting like God. He's saying he is God. He's doing the things that only God can do. That was the issue. They knew God could forgive. They had a whole system set up for it down in Jerusalem. Showed up with your animals, your doves, your lambs, your bulls, whatever, and you offered it to God, and the priest would go through the motions of sacrificing that animal and offering it on the altar and making sure that some of the blood got spilt on your ears and on your feet. And he'd say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift the countenance of his face upon you and give you peace. You're forgiven. He'd assure them of their pardon, that their sins had been forgiven like I do. He says to us in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you confess your sins, God hears the prayer and he answers. He forgives. No issue with that. What they had the issue was, Jesus exercising authority over all things, even over the ability to forgive sins. Of course, it's in a shadow now, looking through a glass dimly. People don't fully get it. Jesus is doing something only God can do, therefore Jesus must be God. But I hope you see, and I hope it stirs your heart to know, that Jesus is God, the God who forgives. He delights in forgiving. He's looking for it. He's looking for faith, ready to forgive. 
doing what only God can do. So, forgiveness is God's to give. But lastly, probably most comfortingly, forgiveness is certain for those who trust Jesus. See, Jesus hears this mumbling in their hearts. He, he hears it, however that works. Sees right through them, knows what they're thinking, and he calls them out. He, he sort of enters into their doubt for half a second. Here's their skeptical questions. Could this really be? What is going on here? This guy's a blasphemer. And he says, okay, okay. You think I'm blaspheming? Well, here, let's do a test. Let's employ the scientific method and set up a hypothesis, put it to an experiment, and see what the results might be. He says, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up your mat and walk? This is a, a form of argumentation the Latin rhetoricians called a fortiori, means from a stronger thing. Lawyers use it all the time. It assumes the truthfulness of one claim and then proves it by a claim that requires even more proof. He doesn't say which is easier to do, to forgive sins or to heal a paralyzed person. Both seem pretty challenging to me, so I don't know about that. But he says, what is easier to say? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk. Think about it. To say your sins are forgiven is easy. There's no way to falsify or verify that claim. Sins are between a person and God. They're hidden in the heart. You know, you can see the outward appearance. Only God knows what's really there. God's book's in heaven. If it's wiped clean and our sins are cast as far as God, from God as the east is from the west, that's great, but how do I know? But to say, get up, take up your mat, and go, is easily verifiable. Instantaneously. It puts a person's credibility on the line in the moment. So all he has to do is say, get up, take up your mat, and go. And then when the man struggles and can't do it, clearly you don't have authority to do that. But Jesus knows what's about to happen. And so he invites them to consider which is easier, which is which is you think is easier for me to say. Your sins are forgiven, or get up, take up your mat, and walk. Sets it up. And then he just pushes through the argument, makes it clear in red lights so you don't miss it, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the paralytic and says, get up, take up your mat, and go. So Jesus prepares them. The miracle he's about to perform has a revelatory function. It's going to reveal something about who he is and what he's really capable of. Because if he heals this man, there's no reason to doubt the claim that the man's sins are forgiven. Why would they? doubt his ability if he's capable of doing something that's totally impossible. This phrase, so that you may know, jumped out at me this week. So that you may know. So that you may know. Where, do I, where was that from? I thought it was from the Gospel of John. John says he wrote all these things so that, and then he says, so that you may believe. I was like, okay. So that you may know. So that you may know. So that you may know. So I put those things in quotes, so that you may know, and I took the Greek phrase, so that you may know, and searched them both in my Bible software. 
The only place it shows up, this phrase, so that you may know. Because if God's going to do something that's going to give me solid feet to stand on, a firm foundation for my belief, I want it. So I'm looking for it, right? And he shows it. Exodus, the book of Exodus, three times this phrase, so that you may know. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, uh, it's right here. The same three Greek words, Mark 2, are in Exodus 8 and 9, three times. Exodus is a wonderful book. You know it from Sunday school. God sends ten plagues on Egypt in order to set his people free. And it's this back and forth between the Pharaoh who hardens his heart and then has his heart hardened, and Moses, God's anointed prophet. And in chapter 8, God sends a plague of frogs. Frogs everywhere, like crickets in Luling. Right? They're just everywhere. They're, in, they're underneath things, in doors that are locked. You know, it's weird. How did frogs get in my water jar? But there they are. There's frogs in there. The Egyptians hated frogs. They thought they were disgusting. And so uh, they wanted them gone yesterday. And so Pharaoh called back Moses. He says, whatever you guys want, I'll do it. Just tell me, when are these frogs going to get out of here? And so Moses tells him in Exodus 8.10, Tomorrow, may it be according to your word, so that you may know there's no one like the Lord our God. Okay, I want you to hear this. This is it. This is the essence of our faith right now. We'll get rid of the frogs, but it isn't about the frogs. The frogs are just an instance where God is showing you that he's authoritative over all things. Exodus 9, the Lord speaks through Moses to Pharaoh. Verse 14, This time I'm sending all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know there's no one like me in all the earth. Exodus 9, 29. Moses tells Pharaoh, As soon as I go outside of the city, I'll spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There'll be no hell any longer. That you may know the earth is the Lord's. The plagues have a revelatory function. They are revealing to Pharaoh the authority of God. And right here in Mark chapter 2, the same thing's happening. There's no denying the implication. When Jesus heals the man, not a plague, it's a reverse of a plague, he heals the man, he does the same thing. So that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He makes good on the word he's preaching to the people gathered outside the house. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Boom. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Of course, it's veiled. What is a son of man? This is the first time Jesus has used this phrase. He's going to use it throughout the gospel. It's his favored term for himself, and it comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and we'll get into it later. But um, at this point, it's, it's cloudy. What is this all about? But anyway, it comes from Jesus. Later on, after the resurrection, though, the disciples put two and two together. Hear how Peter puts it in his sermon to the Gentile household of Cornelius. Acts 10.38 You know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. You know that story. We've been seeing it week after week after week in Mark. We are witnesses of these things. He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him on to death by hanging him on a cross. And God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, 
but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to those who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So Jesus makes it clear, household of Capernaum, that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up, take up your mat, and go. And they know, okay, if he can do that hard thing, which is harder than just saying your sins are forgiven without any verifiable data to assess, then maybe he is able to forgive sins. And I think that's why the people praise. We've never seen anything like this before. No blood involved, no sacrificial animal having to be spilt. What's that about? Forgiveness of sins just by fiat declaration? But that's Jesus. And after the crucifixion and resurrection, it all makes sense. Paul says in Colossians 2, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, we all need forgiveness. We've all sinned against God. We've, we've neglected his law. We've gone against his commands. Every last one of us is accountable for him. And it's his prerogative to give. But the good news, church, is that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he could condemn sin once for all on his cross. He set it aside. He took the record of debt. Every last thing you've thought and done. And where there's a little piece of paper or a piece of board that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, instead there was a piece of paper up there with every last sin you'll ever commit. And it died a gruesome death. We're talking about cancellation of your sins. Genuine forgiveness that's certain for everyone who believes in Jesus. I don't know what you're hoping you're going to get from God. What thing's going to put the pieces of your life together and make everything make sense. Finally, once for all, if job would just answer this request, if you just make all these pieces line up, man, life would be so good. Now, the peace you're looking for, the peace that passes all understanding, is only available to you by having your sins canceled and being reconciled to God to have perfect fellowship with Him now and forever. And the good news is, Jesus wants to give it to you today. Certainly, like the certainty of forgiveness is available for everybody who trusts in Jesus. And just as certain as He said to that man, get up, take up your mat, and go, He wants to say to you, your sins are forgiven. You are clean. Go and sin no more. He wants you to live and newness of life. So this morning, I would just ask you, as we close, have you been forgiven of your sins like that? Or do you know that when you stand before God, you're not going to compare yourself to all the people you know who are just hellions and heathens and living sinfully? Are you going to compare yourself to them, or are you going to say to God, no, I know my sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's the promise that Jesus is holding out to you today, to know that your sins are forgiven and you're set free to live for Jesus. If, if you do know that your sins have been forgiven like that, I, I might would just encourage you to this afternoon, open up your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And hear God's word to you. Therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, offer yourselves up as living sacrifices. You've been forgiven and saved and set apart to live differently, to live for Jesus. Are you doing it? 
If you've been forgiven of your sins, you know the truth of Jesus, what he does. You're like those four faithful friends who grabbed their buddy and brought him to Jesus. I wonder, who do you need to bring to Jesus? What friend or neighbor or son or daughter, co-worker, needs to have their name brought to the Lord every day in prayer. When my kids are spinning their wheels trying to find something, save them from their sins. God, my coworker is so miserable and I don't want to hear another thing about her husband. Open her eyes to Jesus, save her from her sins so that she can find genuine peace in him. God, I hear my neighbors yelling at each other all the time. Did you know, I know I need to go talk to them. But before you help me work up the courage, God, would you prepare them to hear the news of Jesus? Would you help me bring them to him? And then if you've done that, maybe it's time that you take Jesus to them. You go and tell them the good news. But really, I, I want to leave you with this. If this morning, as I've been talking about sin and forgiveness, you've asked yourself if you really have prayed a prayer of confession ever, not just like lately, but ever. Have I ever been honest before God about this true condition of my soul and the way I've lived my life? Today's the day you should do that. Jesus knows, and he's willing to forgive. Will you pray with me?